This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how are you getting on, mate? Not bad, not bad. It's been a busy December for all of us um, with... um... It's like the thing of the World Cup and in the middle of all of our Christmas plans. But um, yeah, looking forward to seeing the Reds get back into proper action. I mean, I know they're technically playing today, but I don't count that as proper action. Yeah, well, I've I've took a bit of inspiration from yourself because I am under the weather. <laughs> I am not well. Um, this was supposed to come out on Thursday. It didn't because I simply couldn't do it. <laughs> um, and so we're getting, we're getting it done today. I think it'll be out on the Saturday, which is unlike us, but... This is just me trying to do my best at 50% or so. So it might be a shorter episode than usual, we'll see. Um, but yeah, going to do my best to get through it. But before we get to Liverpool, in terms of the World Cup, mate, obviously the World Cup finalists this weekend. Mm-hmm. Just general thoughts on who's going to win it. What are your thoughts on who who you want to win it? Things like that. Well, it's interesting. Um, my predictions are going to be nowhere near as entertaining as Daniel Sturridge's, but hopefully they might be a little bit more accurate. Um, in terms of who I want to win, it's it's interesting because I can see good on both sides. Like, I'm not, I don't have a heart of stone. I can see the benefits of Messi finally getting to where he wanted to be, crowning himself as the greatest ever and all of those conversations and stuff like that. But, I mean, on the other side of it, I can see plenty of benefit in um, the likes of Mbappe becoming the new Pele, two World Cups by the age of 23. And obviously, from a Liverpool point of view, one of our players is on the France side and might well be playing in the World Cup final. So, I think most of us here, if that is the case, would automatically side for France. Um, Yeah, I think I probably would too. In terms of what I think is going to happen, it's going to be tough. It's going to, it's not going to be a great game in terms of action and drama. Well, not early on anyway. I think the drama might come in as we get towards the end of the game. But I do think it's going to be one of those games where both teams will believe that there's something in the opposition that means that they can get at them. It's just which one will be successful. Like for France, I expect to see Rabiot return as good as Yusuf Afana did, I thought, against Morocco. I think that he will turn. Obviously, Griezmann is their um, most dangerous player in terms of the one who Argentina should be keeping an eye on. And whether or not they have a plan for him might be vital. But I just think, you asked me to put my hand on my heart and tell me who I think is going to win the trophy. I still think France. I think, yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? I think I would probably side with you ever so slightly, even though... Throughout the tournament, I think Argentina have looked like the better team to me. I think defensively, they look really, really resolute. And I don't think they've given away more than 0.6 XG in any game yet. Um, France have conceded, I think, in every game except for the recent match against Monaco. And I watched that game and Monaco probably should have scored. Um, But France just have this weird way about them where they they just deliver results without playing particularly well. I thought they got outplayed for large periods against Monaco. I thought England outplayed them for large periods. But they just find a way to win. So I find it really hard to call. But I do think Argentina are being underestimated as a, a team. I think they're a really good team at the minute. 
Um, but I, I, I think on, I think the, the match will be pretty much won on the right side of the pitch or the left side, depending on how you're looking at it. Because on that side of the field, obviously you've got Mbappe, who's playing for France, and um, he doesn't track back. You know, he, he tries to cheat and, and stay high up the pitch. And on that side of the field is where you're going to have Messi. So mm-hmm. you'll have Theo Hernandez, who I don't think is the best defender, kind of trying to deal with Messi on that side of the field. As a result, the the, the second man of France's two-man pairing will probably get drifted over there to deal with Messi and, and kind of double up on him. So I think that the, the way France deal with that side of the pitch will be very interesting. In fact, I wouldn't even be that surprised. In fact, yeah, I would. I don't think it will happen. I was going to say you could you could field Mbappe through the middle uh, simply as a way of making your right side a little bit more defensive, but that would mean taking Giroud out. And I, I wouldn't take Giroud out for the final. I think Giroud has been great throughout the tournament. So it's going to be interesting to see how it works out. But I think the right side of the field for both teams will, will kind of decide the game, really. What I would say about that is that that was very much Morocco's game plan as well, to kind of attack the space behind Teo Hernandez. And unfortunately for Morocco, yes, you can say that their attackers aren't quite as good as Argentina's, to be to be fair. But they they came into the brick wall that was Ibrahima Kanate. Because if you watch that game, he was doing the job of at least two men, sometimes three. And he didn't break a sweat. <clears throat> so I can definitely see that being Argentina's game plan. But I also think, from a France point of view, what they aren't going to do is they aren't going to try and overcompensate for that. So, yes, if it's Chiromeni or Arabio, they will occasionally drift into those spaces. But I do think that they will also trust the defence to be able to deal with it. So they won't compromise to the point where they they don't have any attacking structure. So it's going to be interesting. Like I say, both teams are going to believe that there's a little gap that they can exploit. Whether or not they'll be um, successful, we'll have to wait and see. Well, you mentioned too many there. It's been quite painful, hasn't it? <laughs> Watching him <laughs> yes. throw the tournament. I mean, he is, a, he is a player. You can see why Liverpool were all over him and trying to get him to Anfield. Liverpool were onto him before Real Madrid, where um, looks like a top player and looks like he was ideal to what Liverpool are lacking, really. Um, one of the players of the tournament, but obviously ends up choosing Madrid. Yeah, as as a lot of them tend to do, which is a shame. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think in in fairness to Real Madrid, the 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 groundwork they did in bringing in Camavinga already probably didn't hurt. Uh, and also, they have the fact that they have that big storied midfield. It's obviously quite appealing to some people. And in Real Madrid, it's just Real Madrid. I mean, you, you've seen the quotes that he said. It was almost like as soon as they came into it, then he dropped Liverpool like a bad penny. And that hurts, yeah. but that's just, that's just the truth. And I think that whole experience has very much influenced some of the things that are happening now in terms of midfield targets, particularly if recent reports are to be believed. Well, that's a nice segue. That pushes on to our, our first talking point of the of the show this week and major talking point of the show this week. And it is that although that Liverpool are targeting Jude Bellingham and we're all well aware of that, we've spoken about him plenty of times on the podcast, they also seem to be going for Enzo Fernandez's reports as to be believed. There's lots of reports lately on this. I think three of the leading outlets in Portugal are doing it. Um Varsky Sports, I think, come out with it. So mm-hmm. it's it seems to be like a growing 
thing that Liverpool are in for both. It's not just like a one-off type type thing where we go for one. Although both are probably going to be quite expensive. Yes. Uh, but can you see Liverpool going for both, Mo? Or are they too similar? Are they, how are they different? You know, what, what were your thoughts on it when you first kind of grasped that Liverpool want both? I was excited, to be brutally honest with you, the first time I heard that they wanted both. And <clears throat> I have been thinking about it for a while. I do think that their skill sets are different enough to be able to exist in the same team. I think if you're trying to think of an example within the Liverpool squad already of where Enzo Fernandez fits as a player, I still think he is more of the Thiago side in terms of the fact that he can affect the game really brilliantly from deep. We've got his passing range is brilliant. He's a creator, but he can, as I say, do it from deeper positions. He also can do it from further up the pitch, but I think that naturally he would tend to work either centrally in a two or as a double pivot with four forwards ahead of him. And then that allows you to say, well, in that case, Jude Bellingham may well become a 10 at some points and be one of those four forwards slash midfielders roaming ahead. I think you could have those, to be honest with you, Josh, if we had a midfield three of those two in many, it'd be over. It would be absolutely over. No one could touch Liverpool in midfield for about a decade. Alas, that's not happening. But I think the initial um, response of most Liverpool fans when they heard the Senzo Fernando news was excitement, but also fear. Because as you say, the way that we FSG have operated for the last 10 years makes you think that it's an either-or situation. But the fact that this deal seems to be being done for the summer and the fact that Liverpool are trying to do this as properly and as upfront as possible in terms of the way they're approaching it with the player and also with Benfica makes me think that, yes, they are going to be targeting both of them at the same time. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think both players are definitely summer deals. I, c- I can't see either of them materialising in the winter. Both players are going to be expensive. Both players want to be kept by their respective yeah. clubs. So, the both winter deals. I'm not sure what that means for Liverpool's January. Maybe it means we do persist with this midfield department for the full season, which is a bit dangerous, I think. Or maybe you could say Liverpool know that they need as many as three, potentially. You know, if, if they want to replace everyone who's leaving, it could be a case of Keita, Ox and Milner all leaving. So um, maybe we do need three. But for me, yeah. it kind of suggests that Liverpool are still going to retain this long-term thinking perspective on things on the transfer market. And we're going to go for two players who who basically sort us out for the next decade if we're going to keep them. Um, I rate them both extremely highly. And mm-hmm. they're, both, they're both younger than the typical player who is this good, essentially. I mean, Bellingham, exactly. If, if I was to watch Bellingham, I would genuinely think he was about 26. That's genuinely. And I think Enzo Fernandez, I'd probably guess he was about 24 or so. Um, mm-hmm. So Liverpool are getting two really elite players there, if the, if if reported to be believed, um, to shore up what is the biggest problem area. And uh, I think I, I tweeted the other day, it reminded me of Liverpool obviously having a defensive issue a few years back, and just get to a point where we just threw everything at that defensive problem, and signed Alison Becker and Virgil Van Dijk in the space of six months, and Fabinho mm-hmm. as well, really. 
Uh, and on the back of that, Liverpool's defensive issues were just eradicated instantly. And I think the following season, we conceded the fewest goals in the Premier League and things won the Champions yeah. League. So this reminds me of that. No, you're right. And the other thing that I think is notable about that, which I think a lot of times gets lost in the kind of the narrative of the story, is that it wasn't just the fact that Virgil and Alisson came in and were better than what was before. It was the fact that they made everyone else better than they were before. I think the version of Joel Matip alongside Virgil van Dijk was light years ahead of the version of Joel Matip alongside Dejan Lovren. And you can yeah. probably say the same for Joe Gomez as well. So it wasn't just about the fact that they were good at what they did. It's just they rose the levels of everybody. And again, I think when you think about the partnership of two kids who are both 21 and under, then they could have the ability to do the same. Whether they have the kind of presence to do the same, it's going to be difficult because I do think that we are still going to need some of the more experienced midfielders. The thing for me, though, and you said about January, is that it very much doesn't solve our problem in January because unless with considering the World Cup break where Fabinho played one game in that whole time, being enough to regenerate him so he can come back and be prime Fabinho between now and the end of the season, we still need someone to play when he doesn't play or to maybe rotate with him. And you can maybe make your argument for Stefan Bajsetic, but or maybe even thinking that Arthur's going to come back from injury quicker than he has been. Both of those aren't really good options, if you're asking me. I still think that we're going to need someone to sit alongside uh, a Jude and Enzo who can do most of the dog work. And that's not to say that either of those two can't tackle an intercept because they can. It's just that that's not going to be their main job. We probably still need someone for whom that's the priority. Whether that means that we're looking at someone a lot cheaper for that position in January, and if we're committing that much money, because I don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of how finances work. I assume that by making a pre-contract agreement with them for the end of the season means that there might be some kind of wriggle room in terms of negotiations to bring Enzo's price down or maybe to pay it over a longer period of time, which might free up some funds to be able to go big on Bellingham and still have a little chunk left to do something around now in January. Because as much as I think that Liverpool, the squad we have at the moment, is good enough to get into the Champions League, I still think that we are leaving ourselves with a potentially obvious issue if we don't fortify the number six position. Yeah, well, what, what I think what you've just said there would be the crucial thing for the deal. I think it would be a case of, if he was getting Enzo as well, I think it'd be a longer term of payments, basically. Um, I think you'd stretch it over over more years and pay in, in gradual instalments, like more so than usual. I think we did that with Jota. Um, yeah. I think the first year with Jota, because it was COVID and all that, I don't think we paid anything for the first year. I might be wrong in saying that. But as a result of that, we paid a bit more overall. I think we paid about 45 or so for Jota. Yeah. Um, we paid a bit less for Diaz, less for Salah, less for Mane. And that was because we, we basically completed our payments for those players quicker. Um, so if we want Enzo Fernandes in the same summer as we're getting Jude Bellingham, you know, I've seen prices quoted for Bellingham of like 130 million. God knows what Liverpool are going to end up paying for him. You know, it is it is it is a bit surprising that we are going for him when you think about it. It's, it's a lot of money that for one player, but 
I do think he's a, a complete one-off. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the two players, anyway, like stylistically, can they play together and things? I definitely think they can. And I think uh, if you look at them stylistically, for me, it it for me it depicts uh, shades of of a kind of Gerard Xabi Alonso partnership. That for me, mm-hmm. I think Enzo Fernandez is a lot less of a runner. Um, I think he's a bit more of a controller, uh, sophisticated, shrewd, cute on the ball, uh, really technical, and composed, and all that sort of stuff in the middle. Kind of like a Thiago, really. I've compared him to Thiago a little yeah. bit. And then you've got Bellingham, who is just the industrious all-rounder, who can essentially do it all and really imposes physical traits in particular on the game. Um, and I think that, that that just reminds me of a, of a Gerard Alonso partnership, really. And then if, if you want, if he's if he's going to stay around and if this is the plan for the midfield to stay as a three, you could potentially look at Fabinho there as, as the Mascherano presence, potentially. Yeah. I mean, it is tempting for us to go back to versions of midfields that work spectacularly well. But you're right. There are very much the same traits amongst both of those two. And I think the other thing I like, the thing about Enzo I like the most is that you never see him get the ball and not know what to do. He's already assessed the best option of when he gets the ball, who's moving into space, where the other spaces might open up. He's made all of those calculations before the balls come to him. So he can move it and progress it quickly. And I think that Bellingham is an equally intelligent player to the point where once he gets to know someone's characteristics, he'll be able to make real, real uh, decisive lethal runs that other defenders won't see. But Enzo will see in the same way that Thiago is able to do those kind of passes now. I think... Once you build up some kind of development of uh, chemistry and relationship between those two, it could be devastating. The thing about Maturano, the comparison with Fabinho, though, he had a kind of an underrated engine. We didn't really notice it because he was basically just, he wasn't on the ball very often. He'd win it and give it to one of the others, but he was always there in and around. And again, this is the thing that we've been discussing with Fabinho all season. How how much left is in his engine? Is he going to need a tune-up? Is he going to need replacing? Are we going to need to bring in someone else to compete with him? Or, dare I say it, is he going to become a saleable asset that we have to replace himself? Well, I was going to say that's that's one of the memes that I have seen. Obviously, Liverpool are going for Enzo Fernandes and Jude Bellingham. Bellingham's getting quoted 100 to 130 million. And Enzo Fernandez has a reported release clause of 104 million. Whether it'll cost that much to get him, I don't know, but it will cost a lot, considering he's just gone there. Um, so both players are going to cost a lot, and you, you you do have to wonder like where are we going to get the money from? That obviously Liverpool get a little bit of money spare if the likes of Milner and Naby Keita and Oxley Chamberlain leave the club. But in terms of sales, I mean, how would you feel if? If Fabinho funded those moves as a, as a duo, if, if, you know, if, if he was to lose Fabinho but gain those two, I'd be very surprised. But I don't, I don't. I mean, it's, it's hard to be disappointed when you get those two in. You know, there's two serious players. But and I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Fabinho. But I must say, what what his performances this season so far, at least, mm-hmm. have been weird. Yeah, it's it's difficult because, like you say. 
the fact that we'd have those two in, the fact that they are so young and so talented kind of makes you think that you're willing to do anything to get them in. But to sacrifice Fabinho for them does accentuate the problem. We would then absolutely have to get in another midfielder because you can't... I mean, I, I think that there are some teams in the Premier League who you could play a double pivot of Bellingham and Fernandes against, but there's not very many because you'd need a little bit more security than that. And yes, I do think that there is a, definitely a school of saying that we have got the best years of Fabinho so far and the years that are going to come aren't going to be as good. Maybe we could potentially learn the lesson that we didn't necessarily learn with um, the likes of Milner, Henson, etc. Very much out because obviously he's still performing okay. But I just think that it's possible. It depends if anyone comes out of the woodwork with any serious offers for him. Because that's the one thing. I like you have seen these rumours around Liverpool may be willing to part with Fabinho to get X, Y, or Z. What I haven't seen is X, Y, Z club have shown interest in Fabinho. And that yeah. is the key. Because if no one wants to buy him, then it becomes a moot point. He should be. A saleable asset, it should be the kind of player that other teams would be interested in. But it's interesting. Well, I don't know. We, we'll have to wait and see on that. Like, silly season is still yet to fully crank up. But um, would I be willing to let him go? Yes, but he would have to be replaced. Yeah, I I don't know me. I'm, I'm a bit on the fence with this one. <clears throat> I think it's difficult to know, like, almost just how much he's kind of dropped without being in the building and, and without being around him and things like that. He's just turned 29, 54 days ago. Um, I mean, whether that's old or young depends on your own perspective, I suppose. And in terms of his concept, um, I don't think, I certainly don't think this was the plan because he's got a contract until 2026. So he's got another, well, three and a half years on his deal. So, I mean, players don't tend to leave until you get down towards two years. So, no. and he's he's kind of really the only the only real six at Liverpool. I know Henderson can do it. Uh, I think Enzo can potentially do it, but to, to, I expect him to start doing it immediately uh, as a 21-year-old in a new country, or 22. How old is he? 21, 22? 21. 21, yeah. Um, I think maybe a bit, might be a bit too much for him. Um but as as a two, actually, though, I, I think Bellingham and, and Fernandez could potentially like I, I always looked at Bellingham and thought, no, he, he's too um he's too kind of all over the place to be a, in a in a double pivot. But mm. the more I've watched him specifically for England, he let he genuinely can just do it all. I have seen him play as a two, I think it was against Germany in a friendly a couple of months back. Yep. alongside Rice, and he was just brilliant, just everywhere again. Uh and Enzo Fernandez, I think, is is definitely a sitter. Um, I think he's an attack-minded sitter, but I don't think he's the type to run box to box all day. I think he's a bit more of kind of like a middle third, edge of the final third, maybe kind of player. If you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I do think I agree with you though in terms of I'd probably like them as a three with someone who definitely will just kind of focus on holding the fort, and that is Fabinho in a way. But it's just whether. Liverpool need some form of sale to fund these moves. Mm. And it's whether Liverpool assess Fabinho as 
still well, with you of being at the club and things, you know what I mean? Well, that's true. I mean, in terms of the, the funding of it, there's a very interesting uh, thread on Twitter. From Mo Chatra, billion to to buy Fernandez and Bellingham, due to the way um, they could structure the deal, it is possible, and it's not that out of the realms of possibility compared to what Liverpool had done previously. Like, I mean, if you look at the thread, it say that some of the years there they've spent 154 million in 1718, 174 million in 1819, when you include amortization of other other um, transfers as well. Um, so Liverpool have put down that amount of money at one time previously. I do also think, like you say, because of the potential for them being so transformative, that has always tended to be something that kicks in with them as in way they will do the deal. But <clears throat> in terms of Fabinho, I think a lot of it comes down to the manager. Like you say, a lot of the fears that we've had of uh, what he could be it's because we've all been saying he needs a break. He needs a break. He needs a break. Well, he's had a break now. So he will now be, well, maybe not now. He will probably in the next couple of days be coming back into training. So Klopp and the team will be able to assess how close to the old Fabinho he has come from this break. And if they think that, yes, he's still the guy for us, then I don't think that they will replace him. I think what I would personally like to see us do is target a young, developing six who's not going to cost the worth and is not going to need to play every week, but it's going to be available to come in and maybe play five, six, seven, eight games between now and the end of the season when Fabinho, when we don't need him to play and so he can get acclimatised. Because I do think that the underrated thing about that position, more than the intelligence to read the game, is fitness and energy. And I think that if you cut someone in who's got more of that than anything else with the rest of the players around them, they can still get through. I mean, they can still get a buy with their physical attributes. So that's the that's the method that I would be targeting as in trying to bring in someone cheap who maybe is a little bit more of a project as opposed to someone like Amrabat because looking at um, stuff today. Apparently, Antonio Conte is prepared to spend fifty million pounds on Sofiane Amrabat, which kind of takes him out of this conversation. <laughs> um, and it's a very, very, very Antonio Conte move. It's like, yes, we've got Hoiberg, yes, we've got Ben Zanker, yes, we've got Oliver Skip, but no, I need another defensive midfielder. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen with him now, but that's what I'd be doing. I'd be looking at someone young who we can develop for not a large amount of money and to maybe kind of compete or literally rotate with Fabinho. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the um, the Liverpool squad now, just to determine, like, if, if we was to keep Fabinho and we was to get in Fernandes and uh, Bellingham, I'm just looking at the squad to determine, like, how we would fund that at the minute in terms of sales. And just looking at the Liverpool squad, I just don't, really know where we're going to do it compared to previous years. Um, like, if you look at the... I mean, you could potentially look at the goalkeeping department. Maybe we could get a bit of money for Kelleher, if that's even a thing that we want to do. Um, in defence, I mean, there's only Naf Phillips, really, that Liverpool could sell. In midfield, you've got Fabinho, potentially Curtis Jones. 
and then in the forward line, none of them. Really, so I, I, I can't really, I can't really see how Liverpool fund if they're going to do it through player sales, which has been the way of doing things for the past mm. few years. I don't, I wouldn't want to sell Keller personally. I think Nat no, Phillips is, all, is, all, is worth keeping it around, and I don't think he's going to get that much for him anyway. And Curtis Jones, I don't think the time is right for that just yet. I mean, maybe you think about it if you know, I don't know, he's just got a new contract, wasn't he? So, mm. uh, yeah, but, but difficult one, the new contracts. Is maybe a way of kind of protecting his value for a longer yeah. period of time. I do think that of the, all of the people you said, that Curtis is still quite vulnerable in terms of being having enough talent to actually get a good fee for him, but still being potentially expendable within the squad. Because <clears throat> this is the really the un, unsaid thing about what we're saying. When we're saying we can't really see anyone who's going to be sold of the players we don't want to lose. There are players yeah. in our squad who would carry a lot of high value and lots of money. We just don't want to lose them. And yeah. I don't think we're yet in a situation where we're going to be forced to lose someone we don't want to. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the Liverpool squad, I think <clears throat> one of the ways in which Liverpool could potentially free up a bit of room is obviously Liverpool um, have a have a Beto Firmino situation at the minute, whereby he's I think he's is he thirty thirty one something like that now. Uh, I'd double check that in a sec. <laughs> he is yeah he's thirty one. So in terms of Firmino, maybe a plan a while back or a, a plan that's been floated has been like let him go, get in a younger model. Um, but maybe a way of kind of freeing up some of the budgets is by just keeping them and, and giving them a new contract, keeping them at the club. As a result, you don't have to get a new player and you don't have to dedicate a transfer fee to a new player. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of keep Firmino around and use that kind of extra room to to get Fernandez and, and Bellingham in. I'm not really sure how Liverpool are doing it. And we, we obviously don't know how much wiggle room Liverpool get as a result of losing Keita, Ox and Milner in the same summer, you know, in terms of wages and things like that. Uh, this is becoming a finance podcast, Mo, this is not our speciality. <laughs> no, it's weird how it's <laughs> happened, isn't it? Um, it's it's, it's, just, it's just surprising to analyse this thing because they are two very expensive players and, and Liverpool don't really have many players to sell to fund the, these moves, so it's curious to see how they're going to do it, if, if, if it is the plan. Well, I, I do think that it's not um, unconnected that we are seeking extra funds. And I do yeah. think that this extra investment is definitely going to come into play. And there was a boost in terms of that recently with the the, um, the court ruling against the European Super League that meant that, in theory, the sanctions could be placed against any clubs who leave to join the Super European Super League. What that, in turn, means is that the leagues themselves become stronger by the fact that they aren't likely any deals, TV deals, broadcast deals aren't going to be broken by a Super League halfway through, which makes clubs like Liverpool a more uh, enticing investment. So I do think that they are going to be able to find people to who want to come in and put money into the club. Whether or not they're going to be able to do it in time to do all of these things, I don't know. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was plan A as opposed to player sales and player sales was plan B slash C. 
the interesting one, what you're saying about Firmino, about rather than say, um, replacing him, uh, giving him a new deal, I do still think that that's part of the remit for Fabio. What he was doing for Fulham, he was playing very much in that number 10 role behind the forwards. Admittedly, they played the 4 2 3 1, so it was behind one forward and they had players out wide either side. But if you look at what Liverpool have been doing recently with Firmino behind Nunes and Salah, I do think that that's a role that Carvalho can move into. And I think that if you look back at the quotes that Klopp was saying at the beat when, when Carvalho arrived, he was also touting him as a potential false nine. So if you add those bits together, then it looks like the next Firmino might well be Carvalho. Whether he has the tools to do that as we sit here, I'm not sure. But I think very much that's the plan because we talk about what well, we haven't talked about it yet, but we're going to the um, the injury injury of Diaz and the blow that that is, particularly with Jota still being out, and the idea of well, I mean Liverpool might need another forward, particularly if they're playing a, a, a formation where the only three fit ones they have are all starting because there's no one to come for the bench. But that might be where Carvalho comes in. It might be that this is this second part of the season, or at least between now and when those two are back between February and March, this is really key for him as a player to maybe kind of integrate himself and find a niche for himself in the side. Yeah, he's an interesting one, Carvalho. Actually, because uh, we spent a lot of time over the summer kind of <clears throat> bigging them up and things and. I think we actually tipped him as a potential young player of the year if things go well. Mm-hmm. And they haven't gone badly or anything like that. And I'm still trying to kind of get to grips with exactly where he's best deployed, Carvalho. Because I think he's definitely got something there. He's definitely good at lots of lots of things. He's attack-minded and stuff, still very young. But in terms of um, just where he is best deployed, I still think it's just it's probably is a number 10. And Liverpool don't usually field a number ten. Um, you've the, the the plan you've just suggested there, where he could kind of become that player. That would then open up the prospect of Fernandez and Bellingham playing as a two behind them. Um, yeah, which would be a four-two-three-one shape. In terms of Carvalho on the flanks, like potentially playing on the left in place of Diaz, who's now injured for a few months. I I don't know. I just don't know about Carvalho on the wings. I I think with with Liverpool, maybe it's just me sticking to like tradition with with Klopp because it's been the case since day one. But he's obsessed with speed on the flanks, yeah, and particularly a threat in behind. And Carvalho's quick. You know, he'd make me and you look, you know, embarrassed. But in terms of uh, his actual speed on the pitch, he's still a. I prefer the ball to feet player. Yes. Um. And I just don't know if that's right for Liverpool on the wings. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right mm-hmm. for the system, particularly four three three. I think I think the four three three system demands runs in behind, and he's just more of a come to feet player. So, in terms of, I, I would have liked to have known actually. You know what what was the plan with him? Because obviously he's a very attacking threat, and he's a prospect. And you know I don't have many concerns with him as a player and like that. But I just mean in terms of the fit. Where yeah. was the the plan for him to play? You know, because we we haven't deployed a ten, and that was how he prospered. He prospered as a ten for Fulham. So, was the plan for, to play him as a really attack minded number eight? Was it for him to be a 
a Minamino type player who's going to just fill in mm. every now and then where he's needed. You know, it's he's a curious one. It is, and I mean. You, you look at him and you think about the close control, the skills he's got, and like you say, hey, the, the not, the not uh, unspeed, and you think that he has it all to be a winger, but whenever we've seen him out there, it's never, like you say, it's never really looked quite right. And I mean, if you yeah. look on his transfer marks, most of his time out on the left for Fulham was in a, a field with two strikers ahead when they were playing a 4-4-2 variant as opposed to a 4-3-3 where there's only one forward. And that does make a difference in terms of what you're expected to do. And we've seen when he's appeared as a left-sided eight for Liverpool, there's been a little bit of him being caught betwixt between not knowing who to cover when we're defensively, not quite being able to find the right spaces. So <clears throat> we did see it in the last um, game against Leon in the, in the pre-season game. He did line up from the left. And to be fair, he did look a little bit better. Um, it was something that it was possibly one of his best performances from a forward position I've seen for Liverpool. So that's interesting. But then how much can you take from a preseason game? And that very much comes into it. One of the things that I've noticed about him, he's been very good at coming on when the opposition have been tiring late in the game and we're maybe needing a goal. He hasn't always got the goal, but there's been lots of times when we've needed a goal, he's come on and a goal has come. How he's contributed to it with the extra energy, extra impetus, giving the defence in general something to think about. There was a stat uh, Andrew Beasley had, uh, let me see if I can find it, where in terms of pure goal difference, in terms of goals Liverpool scored and conceded when he's been on the pitch, he has been better than anyone. Yeah, here we go. 337 minutes he's been on the pitch in the Premier League. Liverpool scored 10 times and conceded only three times, which you can put down to game state and stuff like that. But like I say, that a lot of that will be influenced by him coming into a game late and being able to give extra attacking impetus, which allows us to score. So he has a niche in that respect. It's just that from the beginning of the game, when defences aren't tired and everyone is in their structure and shape, does he have the ability and the skills to be able to cause problems at that stage from the left? I'm not sure. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, on top of Carvalho, what Diaz's injury also impacts <clears throat> is probably means Nunes is spending the rest of the season on the left. Um, that felt like a temporary thing for me, but. Now that Diaz is going to miss the rest of the season, it's probably going to be a case, I think, of, of Firmino mainly down the middle, Nunes mainly on the left, Salah mainly on the right uh, in Liverpool's 4-3-3 system. Now, Nunes' scoring record in that role is, is brilliant. Um, he, he hasn't really looked particularly out of place. But I still don't think he's that player. I still think he's a man for the middle. I think he's a penalty box player. Um, and... I'm going to respond, actually, to someone who keeps commenting on the YouTube videos. <laughs> dangerous. Keeps... This is dangerous. Yeah, yeah, this is dangerous, yeah. <laughs> someone keeps um, mentioning, let's say, that that I am throwing the odds quite a dig at Nunes. Um, now, I want to clear this up. I, that's not the case. I, I think Nunes is very, very good. I think he's the roughest of rough diamonds 
but there's definitely a diamond there, and I think he could yeah, explode yeah. in a few years. In a few years, he could be incredible. What I don't like about Nunes is, unlike previous signings, particularly attacking signings for Liverpool, like Jota and Diaz, um, Nunes is not a seamless fit with the 4-3-3 that Klopp's established over the past few years. No. I don't think he is in the mould of a Mane or a Salah as a wide forward. And I don't think he's in the mould of a false nine when it comes to Firmino. No. I think he's a striker, a poacher, a penalty box player who's going to finish the move for you. And that's not what Liverpool have had over the past few years. Liverpool have had players who are all-rounders. All of them can put the ball in the nets, but if anyone is going to do that, they're going to come from out wide, inwards. So... I have no issues with Nunes as a player. I have, I just have a slight issue with... I still don't know what the plan is for him. I still well, see Klopp kind of using him like he's Mane or like he's Firmino. And the crucial thing for me is he's not. He's different. And I, I haven't seen enough um, accommodation maybe for him in, t- in well, a tactical sense. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it's fair to say that he, Klopp's using him like Firmino and Mane. I do think he's different, but I do think that that's on purpose. Like, this is the thing, right? I think we got to the point with Klopp's tenure where we've had those three forwards and they've done very well for a very long time. But if we're going to evolve past them, the next evolution of this team, we need to add something different. We need to add something different. I think Klopp was already thinking about that when we played Benfica in the Champions League last season. And then he saw the damage that Nunes did to us. And, I mean, you can look at the quotes out there. Klopp said he fell in love with him during those games. And I think he, in Klopp's mind, he was like, this is the something different that we're looking for. We can add, we can adapt to what we do and add a bit more directness up front, a bit more uh, chaos up front. Because this is a... They've, they've done chaos before. I mean, when they first came through, it was very chaotic, but we made it work. So in my mind, I think Klopp was thinking, we are going to have to move into something different. We're still going to have Mo Salah, who's still going to be able to be Mo Salah, but our focal point is going to have to shift. And I think yeah. you're right, as much as they haven't found the perfect fit for him. But there's many reasons for that. And I think the struggles yeah. within the rest of the team kind of make that a lot harder. But... <clears throat> In my mind, that's the plan. The plan is change. And I yeah. think that eventually, if you are going to start to regenerate the football team, that is probably going to have to happen. I mean, we've done, we did fantastically well with doing the same thing over and over again and no one being able to deal with it. But I mean, I'm not sure you can do that forever. And the key to that is that. You can do that for a long time with those players who know it inside out really, really well. If you're trying to evolve as a side and bring in new players, it's a lot harder to expect those new players to be as good at it as the old players. So then you try to adapt and try to do something that works for both of them. And it's that process that we're in at the minute. We haven't felt fine. We haven't quite found the point where it all clicks, but I think that's where we are. Yeah, I think difference. Difference is fine. <clears throat> you know, I've got no issues with the uh, evolution and making changes and things like that. So I think getting a player in who's going to... And I thought this was going to happen, by the way, a few years back. I remember saying that when Liverpool replaced for me, you know, I think they will replace him with a player who basically scores more. 
um, and that's what they've done. And you absolutely cannot question Nunez's scoring record so far because he's he just naturally finds the net. You know, he's a, he's a magnet when it comes to all that stuff. I just mean in terms of the tactical fit, it just still feels like he's he's not in the perfect role yet. He's not being prevent, pre- presented with the exact uh, environments, if you want, that he will prosper most in. Obviously, you can put that down to injuries in the attack. You know, he hasn't played with Jota much. Diaz has been injured and now will be injured for the next three months. The midfield department's been a bit all over the place. So, there's legitimate reasons behind it. But, you know, seeing Nunes out wide, even though he's scoring, it I, I think a very similar profile to Nunes is Haaland, personally. I think I think Haaland's the closest profile to Nunes that I've seen in terms of being a player who's about 6'2", but he's rapid and a real poacher, really clinical when he's in the box, can potentially look a tiny bit almost awkward when he's away from the goal and, and things like that, but he's got obvious quality when he in certain moments, but close to goal and penalty box and stuff. I think he's similar to Haaland and you, you just never put Haaland on the left. <laughs> and if you want to put Haaland through the middle, you'd probably put a 10 behind him. Like Dortmund played with a, a 4-2-3-1 predominantly last season. City playing with 4-2-3-1 this season. Um, and it's because they don't really want Haaland dropping into those areas. You know, they want a 10 yeah. behind him. So um, I think Nunes would be best, you know, with, 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 with all that kind of taken care of. But obviously we haven't seen it yet. We still can see it. But I just wanted to clear that up regarding Nunes on the wing and, and things like that. <laughs> yeah, to all, to all my haters, this one is out for you. No, um... <laughs> I'll just drop on. I'll just drop on a, an imaginary mic. Yeah, no, I, I do. I do agree with you in the Harlan Nunes comparison. I think one area they do differ is uh, personality slash mentality. I think, as we have seen, um, Harland has been very good. At ignoring all outside noise, external noise. He ignores it when he doesn't score in a game. He ignores it when he misses a chance. He's able to reset and go again because he has ultimate confidence in his ability to do what he can do and what is necessary for a team. And he's proven it time and time again. And I think as much as all of his physical attributes are really important to how they play, in terms of being a Manchester City player, that might be the most important thing. The fact that he can shake off any kind of disappointment, any kind of... Uh, so, for example, I don't think he would have been in, in the situation where Nunes was where he got sent off against Palace. I might be wrong, but I don't think that anyone's going to be able to bait Haaland into getting sent off. However, if he did, I would think that three games out, he would be able to come back in and he'd score immediately because that's just what he does. He's able to just reset. And Nunes runs off drive. He runs off emotion. And that works well for him. And I wouldn't want to curb that emotion. But I do think it means that there are different outcomes from them. And I do think it means that there are certain areas where he's going to take more time to get up to speed than Harlem will. But once he gets there, I think the, the, the results might be even more spectacular. Yeah, it's not even a it's not even a, a get up to speed thing for me. For me, it's just more a tactical fit. For me, it's yeah. just a, how he fits into a system. And I think so far, 
again, it could just be due to injuries and the makeup of the squad at the minute in terms of the midfield and stuff. But I would just like to see him presented with a, a bit of a more suitable platform to thrive for appreciating the player that he is rather than just kind of um, fielding him in roles that have previously been established at the club for other players almost. And he's yeah. expected to occupy those and he's done well occupying them. You know, as I keep touching on, he's scoring every other game, really. You know, he's, he's scoring all the time. So, it's, something's going right when it comes to that. I just mean in terms of his general, his general play, his contributions to the team as a whole, I think it could be improved. And it could be improved based on what he's surrounded by and, and, and the positions he's put in. Um, but it's a shame that we're going to see Diaz on the, on the sidelines for the next three months. You know, I was looking forward to seeing him back. Um. But yeah, that's the way things go. So I think Mo will leave it there for this week. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us, mate. No worries, no worries. You, you soldiered on. I mean, it was a little bit more <laughs> dramatic than me when I did a show literally with COVID. But you soldiered on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what I've got at the minute, if you've, if you've listened in from Liverpool, if you haven't got this yet, you will have this in the next week. <laughs> because everyone's it's just going everywhere. It's all around the city at the moment. And uh it's it's putting me on my back. <laughs> it's painful. We got there though. Like we didn't skimp on the quality. We gave the people something to get their teeth into, something to discuss, and now we can both go home. I mean, my bed is literally there, and I might be getting right into it because it's freezing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We, is, we, we've done our duties to the people, Josh. Don't worry. Yeah, well, hopefully, I'll feel a bit better next week because next week we are recording the last analyzing Anfield of the year. Uh, the last one of 2023, because we have a bit of time off uh, over Christmas period. So hopefully that episode will be a bit healthier. Um, do tune in then. Mo, thanks for joining us, mate, and we no will worries. see you then. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.